In this episode, Robin interviews the poet Analysis, and we introduce a new segment, The Geekscape, where we talk about Star Trek. All this and more on The Leftscape! I'm Mary McGinley, and you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. And today is the 23rd of October, which is National Mole Day. And it's not a day in honor of the small burrowing creatures. This is a commemoration that takes place between 6.02 a.m. and 6.02 p.m., and that's very specific because it makes the date 6021023 which translates to Avogadro's number which is approximately 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd power and this is one of those geeky days that i really dig <laughs> and so i guess what does it have to do with balls it, that's a mole <laughs> avogadro's number is a mole it defines oh. the number of particles in one mole of a substance. So it's not a dark spot on your skin? No. Okay. Or And it's not a burrowing creature. It's uh, it's Avogadro's number. Um, and this is, I guess, um, similar to Pi Day, which is March 14th. So, yep. so all of you science chemistry geeks have fun. I really with- love this. I, went, I didn't know about this day <laughs> until you, you mentioned it. And I am really... It's like to find, I, there's got to be some kind of chemistry related event that happens because of this. And I'm going to look for one. <laughs> I just some, wish there some was, air. <laughs> I just wish there was some kind of sweet pastry involved. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's today. Tomorrow, the 24th is National Food Day and United Nations Day. Hmm. The, the 25th is National Greasy Food Day. Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay. I I don't understand why that is. Um, and the last Friday in October, which is also the 25th this year, is Frankenstein Friday. <laughs> and I'm not sure why that is, but it sounded funny. So. It sounds like a Halloween-y thing to do. So yes, why not? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? Speaking of which, though, I, I have to let you know, if you were interested in... If you ever watched Mystery Science Theater 3000, yes, mm-hmm. uh, they're appearing at the State Theater oh. in these days. Okay. Yeah, Which like, cast? Uh, Joel. <laughs> Joel. Really? It's Joel? It's the original cast? Original Joel. Yeah, original okay. cast. Because I know there was a there was a bit of a... Replacement. No, mm-hmm. it was a kerfuffle where Joe was replaced by Mike. And that no, was... this is Joel. Okay. I know Joel was part of the was servo and yes, Joel was the spearhead of the of the re- resurrection of MST3K um, back a couple of years ago. They had a Kickstarter that I funded, 
and got oh. uh, some stickers and patches. Oh, well, crazy you can, things. You can spend <laughs> a lot of money at the State Theater and get more stickers and patches. <laughs> and that's coming up on October 26th at the State Theater in New Brunswick, New Jersey. That's oh, cool. very cool. And it's also the 26th is also National Financial Crime Fighter Day. And hmm. <laughs> I, I like, I know it's, it's a day to appreciate, uh, the, those forensic accountants that put people in jail, like oh, that's made true. off and yeah. hopefully, and hopefully the person sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue soon. Yeah, um, sure. It must be a kind of thankless job going through all that paperwork. So. I know, I know. Uh, and it's also pumpkin day on the 26th. On the 27th is Navy Day and Black Cat Day and Mother-in-Law Day. <laughs> I don't know why these three days are the same day. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my mother-in-law because she's okay. a very, out of the three mother-in-laws I've had, she's by far the best. Oh, good. <laughs> are you a good mother-in-law too? I have, I guess so. I'm a standoffish mother-in-law. I, I have no idea. You'd have to ask my son-in-law how good I am in terms of that. Um, oh, should I be expecting a present? That should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the 28th is National Chocolate Day. So uh, that's for people who still need to go get their Halloween candy to mm -hmm. hand out and on the 29th is national cat day as opposed to the national black cat day uh, it's oatmeal day hermit day and world stroke day and if, if somebody wanted to <laughs> honor all these days this would keep them very busy eating yes and that would be eating true. oatmeal and chocolate and petting their cats and <laughs> you could you could make a book out of that like people yeah. do like the year of bi biblical living or whatever you could do a year of on, of doing all these holidays that would be <laughs> i i'm gonna pass it would be exhausting <laughs> Yeah, already, I already. I will pass too. I let me tell. I when I when when I was uh, a new mom and we were raising we we as the immediate family were pagan. My family was Jewish. His family was Catholic. So there was a year where I tried to observe all three religions' holidays. Oh. And it was like, every time I turned around, it was something. And yeah. after, the, after the end of the year, I said, look, we're picking one and that's what we're doing because this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you didn't realize that Catholics every day is a holiday. Every day is some saint's day. So. Well, I didn't did it, I didn't do that, but it was like you know Ostara, Easter, um, and Sukkah. And, you know, it's like they're all clustered within a few days of each other. All of the um, like the the spring festivals and the fall festivals, and you know, and then there's the the solstice ones. It was just crazy. It's crazy, <laughs> crazy. Never doing that again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think well, I just have... heard your cat. Yep. Yeah, there she is. Exactly. <laughs> well, we have some birthdays to uh, announce. Today is the birthday of Ang Lee, um, Martin Luther King the third, and Pele, the soccer player. Uh, on the 24th, tomorrow is Drake's birthday. On the 25th is Katy Perry and Pablo Picasso, who uh, left us in 1973, but left us a lot of amazing art. 
Um, on the 26th is the birthday of Seth, Mc, Seth MacFarlane and also Hillary Clinton. I almost thought you were saying Sekhmet. So. Oh, no. <laughs> would be interesting. <laughs> on the 27th is uh, John Cleese's birthday. On the 28th, it's Bill Gates, Frank Ocean, and Julia Roberts. And on the 29th was the birthday of Bob Ross, who... Oh, with the happy little trees. Happy little tree, yes. So, And mm-hmm. I just saw a sexy Bob Ross costume for Halloween, so <laughs> I, I'm tempted. I'm really tempted. Really? There was, there was a non-sexy Bob Ross costume that I saw pictures of on social media the other day. Um, and the wife had dressed up as a pretty accurate Bob Ross, and she had her husband dressed up as a painting. Oh, that's oh. cool. You know, and, and I think she would actually paint like a happy tree on him or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good couple's costume. It is. Yeah. It is funny. Did you ever see the movie that Pele was in? I didn't. Uh, I think, I think, um, What's his name? Sylvester Stallone was in it too. It was about guys in World War II, guys in a prison camp. They they were they and they played soccer. So suddenly Pele was playing soccer. Oh wow! Entertaining <laughs> Nazis. Never seen that movie, but I, I did see the, the Simpsons episode that he was in. So oh. where Lisa wanted to play soccer. Escape to Victory, nineteen eighty one. Ah, yeah, they escaped. Okay. And next up is all the news we can handle. So there's a lot of news, as usual. Um, One of the ones that is really on my mind is Turkey attacking Syria and um, are no longer protecting the Kurds that we're in that region. It's sort of a, a weird circular thing where it feels like, uh, or at least my understanding of it is that the U.S. presence there was keeping a very um, fragile balance, and uh, people leaving has sort of allowed this to happen. And now we're even more leaving because it's happening, and people and are in sending, danger. They're moving the troops to Saudi Arabia for some reason, and and the the thing I read, I guess this morning was that. The Kurds are now looking to Iran and Russia for help. So we're, I, I don't know. It's yeah, just, none like, of it makes any sense whatsoever. Well, and I mean, you know, some, our president has a hotel in Turkey. That's yeah, he's what this is two about. of them, I think. Um, but yeah, plus then the... The jails are opening and the people are escaping. The ISIS people are escaping with that. That we spent so much time and effort to, to get hold of these people and to um, bring them to task or whatever. And now they're all free. It's free Mm -hmm. to do what they were doing before. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know the answers to all of the the balance there, but I don't feel confident that Trump's reasoning is for uh, anyone's best interest, except his own, perhaps, uh, or or whatever. He was persuaded to to let this happen um, for whatever reason. So it's distressing. I don't have much more to say about it, except you know, it's a it's obviously a big thing that's 
going on. Um, other things. <laughs> I want to. That's about I just all we wanna, can handle about that news. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm. Um, I just want to give recognition to um, Strom Thurmond's daughter, who recently passed away. Um, she was 87, and her name was Essie Mae Washington Williams. And you know, it, it. I just feel like it must have been a really hard thing to be the daughter of, to be a biracial person to be the daughter of such a strong segregationist and to not be acknowledged in her lifetime by him. Um, I, from my understanding, they had, a, you know, somewhat of a relationship. They never said they loved each other exactly, but she felt that there was a connection and he, you know, did some things to see that she was taken care of, but never spoke of her uh, in his whole lifetime. She came out about it after he had passed. Um, so I just wanted to say, um, you know, just say say an acknowledgement of her life and that she mattered. And it's sad that it yeah, happened it is, that way. It is sad. Um, and I wanted to, this is probably old news at this point, but the day we're recording this, this just happened. Uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics has been given to... Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo of MIT and also Michael Kramer of Harvard for their experimental approach towards poverty alleviation. Um, in the last 20 years, their new experiment-based approach has transformed development economics, which is now a flourishing field of research that the, the Royal Swedish Academy of Science said in their statement. Um, and they have helped over 5 million Indian children. They have benefited from <clears throat> effective remedial tutoring thanks to one of their studies. Um, and other work of theirs has inspired public investment in preventive health care. So I, I'm happy. That's a, that's, I'm hoping that's something that can be um, further studied and, inst and, the, and the results instituted in, in more programs to help alleviate poverty across the world. I think that's that's a nice thing. So the tutoring is helping the children raise their economic level? Um, I think mm -hmm. it's more than just that, but they they were, you know, I think it's just because they're taking, they do experiment, they, they've had an experimental approach to see what the underlying causes of sustained poverty is and how we can, and how you know, social programs can benefit people to alleviate their poverty. Um, and I, and, and I'm guessing, um, that, that the, uh, the kids who are in, in abject poverty, they, they require more, you know, a little more handholding in school than, than wealthier children. Yeah. For well, various reasons. It makes sense. I guess it makes sense. Cause if you don't have hope, it's hard to change. Yeah. And the t tutoring would inspire some hope. Mm hmm. Yeah, let's all get some hope. Huh? <laughs> but that sounds great. Congratulations for that yeah, prize. And thanks for, I love that you bring that type of news to us, Wendy. I'm glad to know <laughs> about that and to, um, to really honor that progress. Awesome. So the last thing I wanted to mention was that I was listening to on the media 
this past weekend, and which is a show that comes out of uh, WNYC Studios, but you can hear it on uh, NPR, uh, you know, you can get it as a podcast, whatever. And it's, um, I always like the show, but this week it really struck me that the episode was called Sticks and Stones, and the guest was uh, Andrew Morantz. And what he really talked about was uh, freedom of speech and his argument against freedom of speech absolutism, which, you know, earned him a lot of uh, dissent on Twitter for sure, (laughs) you know, when this article came out and he talked a lot about that. Um, But really it's, he talked about how, um, what, you know, that there's, there's our freedom of speech and there's, and there's our freedom to be, not be harmed. And those things are kind of in attention with each other in terms of what our mm-hmm. rights are. And, you know, so is it really okay that you can say anything you want, except in the case that it causes someone to do you physical harm, you know? Well, that's what people say a lot. And and what was different about this conversation? Right. That's what people say a lot. And then, well, I guess they thought, you know, are, is that the only kind of harm? Is physical harm the only thing that's... Wow real or is emotional harm valid you know um Mm -hmm. is there what's the is is there more harm done by us um not being allowed to speak certain things or is there more harm done by nazis saying whatever the hell they want (laughs) you know that's another yeah once something is said it cannot be unheard right right that was so that was a big part of the conversation but it also um, got into the idea of how we tend to think of ourselves. We, we sort of, um, as Americans, have that exceptionalism really deep inside of us. And I think, you know, and that's like one of the things that I tend to think that I don't think that way, but I probably really do. I probably have in- what, internalized a lot of that, you know. What, do you, what does that mean, exceptionalism? It means that we're accepted? I mean, that think laws don't apply to us or... What do you mean by the idea that we're, American exceptionalism is the concept of that we're the number one nation and we're great. Wow. We will always be rising to more greatness, mm, yeah. you know, and that's kind of, I mean, I don't think in my head that I believe that, but I think that I used to think that, that I used to think that I don't think that anymore. Hmm. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us have been, um, you well, know, that's, we up, were, we've wake, we've woken up to a situation that's not but ideal and we see ourselves more clearly maybe that was the that was the i don't want to say brainwashing but it was the brainwashing that we went through in the public school system right right was that we're number one we're the best we we you know we went to the moon that we did all these great things and they don't talk about any of the less than great things that we have done Right. And so this person's idea was basically, you know, if you believe in exceptionalism, like you can under, you can incorporate that idea of absolute freedom of speech all the time. And no matter what's said or what happens, we'll always be evolving to more greatness one way or the other, because that's just the story that we believe, you know. It's like believing in fate. Right. Or, or um, almost divine providence or something. Yeah. You know, so if that's not the case and you start to think of us in terms of, you know, our future is contingent on a whole lot of things, 
you might start to assess things differently and and see how certain types of behaviors could lead to bad outcomes. It's not that we're always going to wind up in the best place possible, not necessarily. And it makes you more thoughtful, you know? So it wasn't a hopeful conversation, but it was a really deep thought-provoking conversation. And and I think it gives you, I don't know, it just, it was a lot to think about and something that I want to listen to again, for sure. And, and maybe talk about more. So yeah. You- it gave you pause. It gave me pause and it gave me a lot of introspection and, and, and it was really kind of interesting to realize um, how much of the exceptionalism I probably have internalized and didn't, mm-hmm. and wasn't aware of. So it's a new, it's just another way of, of waking, of, of, of um, waking up into more perspective. Yeah. So definitely okay. worth, worth listening. So yeah. that was on the media was the name of the podcast. Yep, and, and the Yep, the episode of Sticks and Stones definitely worth listening to and thinking about. Yeah, and we'll be we'll be grabbing that topic for ourselves for a, sh- a future show. Yeah, definitely, it sounds very interesting. Yep. I have some breaking news of a personal nature. A few days ago, Mary's husband Alan Simic suffered a stroke. There is a GoFundMe to help with their massive medical expenses. Please go to bit.ly slash help Alan and contribute if you can and share it on your social media. We thank you for your support. And the link again is bit.ly slash h-e-l-p-a-l-a-n. Thank you. Hey folks, we're doing a new thing, a Patreon page. We have the chance to grow, but we need your help. Become a patron and we will create a better experience for you with new segments, more interviews, and exclusive content. We love this project and are excited to have you on board as part of the Leftscape team. Check us out at patreon.com slash leftscape. I'm Kevin Patterson of Poly Role Models. And I'm Melana Phelan, the polyamorous librarian. Together we write the For Hire novels, and you are listening to The Leftscape. The shape of progressive conversation. Well, I am here with analysis, and you know someone's good if they just can get away with going by one name. (laughs) 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 Analysis is a spoken word poet, a veteran of various forms of public speaking, a rad bookseller, a minister, an educator and consultant, and a lover of justice and human rights. He's also a self-diagnosed soccer addict. So I I already feel like we might have to have him back because there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) It sounds very interesting. he is from Baltimore, Maryland, and has performed his poetry across New England and the Mid-Atlantic. So welcome to the Leftscape Analysis. Thank you, Robin. It is good to be. It's my honor to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. And what yeah. a cool name for a podcast. How can, how can you not want to be on a podcast called the Leftscape? Hell yeah. That's what awesome. I'm <laughs> nice. Nice, nice. So let me start. I'm, I'm interested in your education, and I don't mean only your studies at American University and at Howard, but 
including those absolutely those experiences but what has your what has been your journey to the way you understand and approach social justice it's been a very interesting one uh in the early childhood years and really growing up uh throughout my childhood uh in baltimore uh i had the good fortune of growing up under family members and extended church family members uh, who were very educated, very involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, my father was uh, very much involved in the movement, uh, used to organize in the 60s with the NAACP. Uh, my late pastor, who I call my late mentor, Reverend Wendell Phillips, um, who was pastor of Heritage United Church of Christ in Baltimore, I and many others who grew up under him uh, were able to learn a lot from him. Uh, he was involved in the movement. And, you know, even at a young age, even as a kid, to listen to uh, stories of him and his friend Martin and his friend Malcolm and... and uh, no way, really? <laughs> yeah, and do things like nice. that. You know, just were not only intriguing, but really made... The movement more real so that it wasn't all the way out there but it was embodied in people that i knew wow. uh, and so him and and again others in that extended family in that extended community play aunts and uncles who had been uh involved in these these things made it made it more real now having said that and, and fortunately even growing up in that atmosphere i also grew up for all 12 grades at a predominantly white kind of old money private school uh, in Baltimore called Gilman, which gave a number of wonderful things in terms of rigorous academic regimen and and all of the things and, and great facilities and uh, small student class, uh, student teacher ratio and all those things that you 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 go to one of those schools for. But it also is a very interesting thing psychologically, especially when one is an adult looking back on it, to be a child of color growing up in a very Eurocentric atmosphere where the things that you are learning, and especially back at this time, and it has not changed enough now, but you can imagine in the 70s um, and early 80s, uh, a very Eurocentric teaching of history and, and worldview, uh, an atmosphere in which the teachers you're trying to please and, and, and the kids you're growing up with for the most part are white and, and, and therefore uh, it can do some mind games to a person psychologically um, to the point where despite the church upbringing that I had, uh, there was this period of time for a few years growing up in which both my theological and social political thought uh, went toward a very conservative bent and uh, I mean, I can remember, I think I was in about 10th grade or so doing Reagan's first uh, election to the presidency. And I can remember being a little Reaganite at the time, if you can believe that. And, wow. <laughs> and, and, and so there was this conservative period that I grew out of. Uh, when I got to D.C., when I went to America and, and started not only interacting with people from around the world, uh, but also just kind of maturing into a, a better common sense where I saw that two plus two wasn't adding up to four from a conservative standpoint, uh, I slowly began to to grow out of that. And so, uh, uh, as you alluded to earlier, 
uh, not only the the strict technical education uh, of those college years, but really just a lot of the, the meeting of people and becoming involved in movements, certainly the anti-apartheid movement uh, that was going strong in the 80s, uh, the movement in support of Latin American justice, uh, of course, that that, that kicked in, in into high gear and during the 80s uh, and other things like that. Um, that really got into my soul and, and it's on those things that I really began to uh, get more active and more aware and begin to cut my teeth in certain things so that uh, by the time the late 80s came around, uh, after undergrad, I had the opportunity to spend a year in Lesotho in Southern Africa. Uh, and this, of course, was during the anti-apartheid days. And so you can already see now from this trajectory that I left that kind of conservative bent that I spun off into for a few years. Uh, got back to the uh, the leftscape side of things, if I can anachronistically uh, bring your your podcast name into it. That works. I like it. <laughs> and and um, spent a year in Southern Africa doing the anti-apartheid movement. A very dynamic experience, working with those who had been in the movement for many years, those who had been imprisoned and tortured, uh, those who were doing the damn thing, uh, if you will, as far as the struggle is concerned. Uh, and so by the time I came back from that. Uh, I was really looking to see how I would continue to develop, to develop in, in, in progressive mode. Uh, uh, end up being a, a high school educator for a decade, uh, both as a, a short and long-term substitute and also uh, with a nonprofit doing college counseling planning in the Baltimore City Schools. But even from that standpoint, it was an opportunity to uh, educate uh, young people beyond just the, the mere curricula or beyond just the college planning, but really try to see where their minds were in terms of, of their critical analysis and in terms of their worldview. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done. Uh, and it was during those years that I began to see that our young people were not getting the history, were not getting the transference of heritage. And so uh, that became a part of what I was trying to do with them and, and have continued to do in any of my professional incarnations uh, is make sure that the teaching of history uh, uh, is is front and center uh, in terms of the people that I work with. I'm the son of a historian. My father went back to school later in life uh, uh, after many, you know, after starting at Morgan, but being caught up in the military in the 60s and then uh, many years in the business field, he went back to school. He got his doctorate in African-American history from Michigan in the 90s. and so, you know, that type of, of understanding, appreciation of history, I guess, runs in the family to a large degree. Uh, yeah. I went to Howard in the, the mid and late 90s, got my MDiv there. Wonderful experience. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was going to ask you about that and how your spirituality plays into all of this and how you bring that into your work now. I think it very much does. Uh, because... You've heard some of, of, of how I grew up, some of the the spiritual right turn that I made and had to come back off of that. Um, but the sense of spirit, uh, and in my particular framework, the sense of Christianity or the potential of the following of Jesus to be a dynamic thing uh, and a progressive thing, and, and, and eventually I would begin to use the word a, a revolutionary thing. Uh, was always there. I had to evolve and grow 
within myself so that that sense of of my understanding my practice of christianity became less and less dogmatic less and less rigid less and less pedantic less and less bashing people over the head and and increasingly liberatory uh and increasingly open and increasingly embracing and that type of thing uh which it which it did and which it continues to do uh so much to the point now where uh, I would describe I would would describe myself probably as certainly more theocentric than Christocentric, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense of really uh, embracing a sense of the spirituality uh, and justice content of of the variety of paths uh, practice in the world, and that sense really began to develop a lot in the the nineties also. But um, so my practice of this thing called Christianity, which has 18,000 different definitions, depending on who you ask. Uh, my particular slice of it uh, is something that really hardly even resembles a more conservative Christianity. My particular uh, understanding of my responsibility as someone who dares, who has the audacity to, to, to try to call himself a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, has a much more revolutionary bent to it. Um, and it's one that really is rooted in kind of a unity with the various world spiritual paths and and faiths and that type of thing. I, uh, I You may smile to know that I was listening to your, your album, This, for a few minutes uh, before, oh. <laughs> before we connected online. So I was enjoying your, your interpretation and some of the Buddhist chants and that type of thing. You know, and just letting that get into my soul, because really it's about understanding the, the, the commonality and the spirituality of the world uh, and figuring out how each of us best translates that into our paths. But there is, but but my emphasis, though, would be on the justice, on the, the, the doing of justice and on the, the revolutionary aspects of all of those paths, because if it does not have that very pragmatic goal of transforming the world and making this on earth as it is in heaven as the old prayer says mm-hmm. um, then then that's when it loses its um uh its reality and its pragmatism and that's when it becomes just head in the clouds type of thing and we don't want any of our spiritual past to be that we want that to be something that is about changing in in the here and now and deconstructing the isms of the world right exactly i've i've heard quite a bit about engaged buddhism and really taking those kinds of principles and not just sitting on your meditation cushion, but being able to be present in the world and do what needs to be done and maybe disengage from outcomes so that you're not like attaching to something like in the Buddhist tradition of like having to grasp it. Grasping at something is what causes suffering, you know, and like the Buddhist ideology. And so just doing what needs to be done and following the path, but and and letting it go and being but being present in the world you know is an important thing so that's i think we share that kind of that idea you know and i've often felt that when you're truly engaging your spirituality whatever that is those things you becomes very similar like the the terms you may use or the forms of the divine you might see are could be different but there's something really similar in that that connection and that mm-hmm intention to do well in the world and to do good in the world. Very you much know. So. Very yeah, much. absolutely. 
So I'm fascinated about your time in South in Africa, South Africa. It was a fascinating period. Um, yeah. Lesotho is a small country. Many, many folk may not have heard of it. I wasn't really familiar with it until um, oh. uh, shortly before I actually, uh, went over there. Uh, That's right. And, and I was sent there as, as mission personnel uh, for uh, the United Church of Christ, which is the denomination that, that I grew up with and, and have actually practiced ministry in since. Mm. Um, but uh, sent not as old school mission personnel of let's go convert everybody, but more actually attached to a, a group based there that was working uh, in justice issues around uh, pushing it back against South Africans, South African mm. apartheid's dominance of the region. Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Uh, it was a group called Transformation Resource Center. Uh, and I, I should back up and say Lesotho is a small country about the square miles of Maryland, more okay. or less, but rounded off. And so when you look at the map and you're wondering what this dot is in the middle of South Africa, that's the country of Lesotho. So it's one of the few countries in the world, I think you can count on one hand, the number of countries in the world that happen to be landlocked totally by mm -hmm. one country. Uh, and it got that way because the Basuto people, whose land extended you know, through much of not only what is today Lesotho, but the, what became the Orange Free State and, and other areas of South Africa, uh, in the 1800s, after fighting off wars with 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 uh, 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 Zulu under under I believe Shaka some of the other kings and then fighting off wars, fighting British and then fighting Afrikaners, they realized that that they're getting overwhelmed and they probably would not survive an extended fight with the with the Afrikaners with the Boers who were pressing in, and so they actually. Uh, decided to become a British pr protectorate. So basically, they said, we'll just be, go ahead and be a British colony in order to survive, as opposed to being overrun by the Boers. And so that's how you have this weird geographic situation there. So as you can imagine, though, that means they were social, politically, and economically dominated by South Africa uh, right. during all of the apartheid years, um, really just as the entire Southern African region uh, was or at least influenced by South Africa in, in one way or another. And so I spent a year there with a group called Transformation Resource Center. We were doing a lot of clergy training, lay training, youth training, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of networking with other anti-apartheid uh, anti organizations in the region. Um, a lot of look at looking at migrant labor and the uh, difficulties caused by so many laborers leaving Lesotho to go and work in uh, South Africa, just as they came from uh, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Swaziland, what have you, um, to work in South African mines, to work in South African fields and that type of thing. Uh, a lot of women's training, women's empowerment and that type of thing. It's really a dynamic year. A year goes by very quickly, of course, but it is something uh, from which I always recommend that young people get a, get away for a while, get out of the country for, for a year or two, especially while you're young, before you have uh, a house note or family responsibilities or that type of thing. It really is a good opportunity to not only learn uh, about others, but learn about yourself, 
uh, put yourself in different situations and to bring a more educated and clear lens back to the United States. Uh, because if there's anything that's clear when you spend some time around the world, it's how the U.S. screws up the world. Right. You know, and how the U.S. has got its damn hands into all kinds of insidiousness around the world. And it really yeah. gives you perspective of that. Uh, and so, yeah, that year has continued to to um, shape me. That year was, was foundational uh, uh, in my subsequent understanding of what I was doing, either in terms of the high schools with, with young people there, in terms of my time in the national offices of the United Church of Christ, uh, in terms of a couple of short stints of organizing that I've had, certainly in terms of uh, any type of writing or speaking that I've done around justice issues, uh, uh, that time was, was informative. Beautiful. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I hope you have some work to share with us. I know we have a chapbook out called Somewhere Through the Haze. Is there something you want to read from that? Certainly. Or I'm, perform. I'm, you don't really even read. You just, you just, I, I might, I might, it, read. Right? I might spit it off the top of my head. I guess we need to figure out what to do. I was going to ask you what type of thing uh, should we go to? Should we get into? Uh, I guess I should say for the listeners that much, if not most, of my poetry is around justice issues uh, in terms of looking at, at, at this particular uh, uh, situation in the struggle or that. Um, not all of it. There are, there are, you know, a couple of things that might legitimately be called love poems. There are a number of things that, that I remember you, your sexy poem. I like that one. That <laughs> I heard you do at uh, Root Studio. <laughs> yeah, you remember that. And there are things that I, I don't even call love poems. I call them silly fl flirtatious poems and <laughs> what have you. They're pieces about family and that type of thing. But I tell you what, um, why don't we talk about the criminal justice system for a second? Uh, what I what I call the criminal injustice system. Um, this is a poem I wrote a few years ago uh, for a conference called Ecumenical Advocacy Days. Uh, and it actually jumps off of a passage in Leviticus uh, and a passage in Acts, a famous passage about, about Paul and Silas being in prison. But it really was just my ingress to get into this whole uh, stupidity and, 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 and modern day slavery that we call prisons and, and uh, the criminal justice system. This is called the selling of souls and selling is spelled with a C in this mm. particular title. The old folk used to say Paul and Silas bound in jail, saying God's praise both night and day. And I hope that Trump might blow me home to the new Jerusalem. I hope it does blow them home all those seized in the marketplace of human capital. But right now, all I hear blustering boast about being tough on crime and misleading media made to maintain some manufactured war on drugs that keeps officials chasing the scream of those in need while ignoring their cries for help. Thus, cells swell. More dwell in them here in the land of liberty than anywhere else. Even the smallest or most repented for of offenses could get you caught up in a maze of mandatory minimums. This mandates a story at minimum of telling the truth, because this situation might have you doing time, and time keeps on slipping into the future. We want to fly like an eagle. But all we see is the new Jim Crow in a societal cage with human rights perverted in the presence of the Most High, human nights deserted, people missing, broken families cry. 
Millions on the inside, near forgotten. Do we ask why? Seems like folk could care less how they got there or if numbers die in deplorable conditions, their lamentations being met with lamentable lies. Oh, sure, the rulers speak pretty words about equal justice, but modify their verbs to contain no action. Their sentence structure is unbalanced with a biased renown that predicates a belief that people of color and poor whites are to be relegated to a subordinate clause. Pardon my grammar. But that ish just ain't right. And the only corrections I see are the glaring ones that need to be made to this criminal injustice system. Both public and privatized prisons are run like rental companies with individuals treated as jump for storage. This situation might have you hauled away, but this ain't mom's Attica. It's the sand quintessential squelching of souls with no renaissance of freedom in Florence. More like the crucifixion of lives and Angola three up on crosses of falsehood, fear and greed. Even the Nazarene would catch the fulsome prison blues under these conditions. Imagine if the carpenter had to sing, sing a song of stolen liberties. Countless commune in his name, yet act as if the least of these are mere unleavened, worth passing over. Take 2.2 million of the creator's loved ones locked up in the U.S. Add to them the 21 million of God's children, many just children, carted around the world as chattel, driven by the trade in forced sex and labor, and you've got gridlock on the road to any human rights with nobody moving freely. Up next, human traffic and weather, or not you choose to reroute your eyes around it, it's still there. Wonder why this absurdity is so out of control? Follow the money. The prison industrial isn't that complex with its con when its context is clarified as corporate players monopolizing human beings like tokens after they land on go to jail. It's easier to figure when you factor in the foolishness of police districts blowing up bookings for filling beds. You see, this is slavery by any other name. Oh, wait. The loophole in the 13th does call it that, doesn't it? Well, there it is. As easy as one, two, three. The strikes you get before being struck out of the full roster of citizenship. Sent down to the minors. Disenfranchised. You don't even get that many swings if you're the away team trying to play in the home park of the privileged. Hardworking folk forced to flee their forebears' farms due to falling prices forged by free trade agreements. Or fleeing violence fueled by arms forged in northern factories and Faustian pacts between our federal and its nefarious friends. Thousands go through hell to get here, only to arrive in hell. Surprised? Well, you won't hear tell of this too much. Our welcoming government quells this, trying to keep it on the slide. But now detention is a family affair, with everyday people rounded up together, then torn apart. Parents and children made separate, but equal is the pain in their hearts. They were hoping this country would want them to stay, but they discovered that even here, not everybody is a star. For them, there's no hot fun in the summertime because they got iced. So while they're made to dance to the music of orchestrated racism, they look for allies to help take them higher. Question is, will we stand with them, doing everything we can so that their God-given dignity is respected and they can be themselves again? We are the ones that must make the earthquake. We are the trumpets that must make the walls shake with justice that opens doors and blows the captives home. Indeed, we might be the next captives. So either we lock arms with those on lockdown or our spirits languish. Our action is of seismic importance. We better not blow it. That's that poem. Yeah. 
It deserves some silence. <laughs> it's hard to. It's hard to know what to say. Thank you. Except to really feel it, you know. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, very often, my writing of a particular issue, or my writing on a particular issue, or that. Um, comes from a desire to to want to say something about it poetically and, and express some things that had been on my mind for a long time anyway. And so very often the poem will uh, encapsulate in some poetic form just a lot of things about a given topic. Uh, and I, I hope that the listener or reader can, excuse me, utilize the, the piece to help them digest a particular issue and to help them learn more about it. You know, I'm hoping that somebody will hear or read one of my poems and want to go out and read more and learn more and, and talk to more people and do more and find out more about the given issue and, and how they may interact uh, with it. So there's a lot in there. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Uh, certainly that is one of the things that influences that poem and a lot of other, you know, people who've done writing and activism on, on the subject. So, so you hear a lot of things in it. Uh, and then sometimes it's just a matter of uh, enjoying a particular run of wordplay that, that not only is, 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 is fun from a poetic stance, but also hopefully helps give some, some bump, some punch, some, some impact uh, to the poem. Yeah. I, hope like, I hope you're an old Sly fan, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah. I love the I love the musical references. Fly like an eagle, I mean, up to, and and I think it yeah. it sort of hits. I, those are the lines that hit me because I'm a musician and and I Definitely. love old rock and stuff, you know, and funk. So it's you caught it. I was like, oh, like when I hear that, I get the, a real phys physical sense of what you mean because I know that music and it affects me and the, using those terms affected me you know and you said you just you just said something which i think is very important in terms of the way it hit you physically and you had the physical effect yeah you know poetry is a powerful thing especially spoken word uh because of the power of its delivery uh and its style and its its presence spoken word poetry has the ability to make poetry real for many, many people it did to me uh uh, I didn't really fall into poetry until about 10 years ago, so 10 or 11 years ago. So I came into it much later in life. I was already in my 40s uh, when I really got into it. Uh, uh, certainly, I had felt the inklings of that energy begin to kind of rear its head in, in years before in other speaking uh, uh, instances because I come out of a background of, of other forms of public speaking in terms of, of preaching and homiletics, in terms of keynote addresses, classroom stuff, that type of thing. Uh, and the energy for for poetry uh, uh, began to rear its head then, but I didn't really do anything with it until uh, I happened to have moved to Connecticut for a few years and, and just in getting to know people and not knowing anybody or much of anybody you want to get out about in town and uh, so I started going to some of the, the poetry venues and just absolutely enjoyed it, found it fascinating. People were very loving and encouraging. Ken, get, get on the mic. You know, like, get on the mic with what? Do what? You know? <laughs> uh, and so 
I pulled one or two little like brain tweezer things that I'd written, you know, some years ago. And I said, all right, maybe this will sound halfway right. And, 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 uh, people loved it. They're like, that's a piece. That's a poem. I'm like, is it? <laughs> and, um, so just continued from there. And of course, you know, I didn't have many of my own piece. I hardly had, had any of my own poems yet. So while in the process of trying to begin writing and figuring out my writing style and, and, and what have you, uh, I just tried to take some of the other, some of the old masters and see if I couldn't take some of their poems, a Hugh Langston Hughes or a Dunbar or something like that, or maybe a piece of poetic prose, just something to get on the mic and begin to get comfortable with 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 that type of speaking, which which while it has similarities with the other types of speaking I had done, certainly has its differences also and had its own had its own set of nerves and and, and questions and second guessing and you know as an artist you had to get past the second guessing of yourself and actually embrace the fact that yes you do have a unique voice yes you do actually have something <laughs> to bring to the table yes you know and contribute to the table because for a while i was like all these excellent poets in the world what what am i bringing to the table why what what am i going to add to it and then you realize that you do have something unique a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about imposter syndrome. So it is a, it is a thing that mm -hmm. we, many, many of us struggle with for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And know. so that type of thing got into me. And so um, say all that to say, I think that, that there's a role for poetry because it just, it, it, it puts the water on concepts that are trying to grow within people to a certain degree. It, it, it helps the power come out. It helps the, the, the elucidation. It helps the, 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 the energy uh, come out and it's it's my hope that uh, for me and, and anybody else writing you know poetry of justice uh, that it really adds to the rest of the art forms the music the dance the visual art the theater the so etc etc you know that it adds to to this whole wave of of activism if you will, of artist activism, of artist social justice. And I need to do better in, in terms of placing my art in a position where it does that. I mean, it's one thing to preach to the choir, so to speak, you know, in the comfort of one's one's venue or that type of thing. It's another thing to try to get the art out there on the front lines. And so I'm still, still trying to discern uh, how to do that, where I'm going to go with that. I'm still trying to... Uh, take this poetry thing to a monetized level where lo and behold, I might be able to actually eat off of it uh, yeah. one day soon. That would be nice. So I need to just kind of kick my own ass in terms of, of uh, doing the, the business side of it that needs to be done, you know, to get yeah. to that level you, you know, as a musician. So, yeah. um, but it really has become a true love of life. It mm -hmm. folds well with the ministerial, you know, callings and energies in me it folds well with the, the whole justice energy and as as i say as well as some other fun pieces and what have you i mean it's just downright fun awesome <laughs> so uh let's wrap it up i just want to know a little bit about i know you're hosting red emma's mother earth poetry vibe yes what is that and where where when and where can people what is, what is that this party wants to say and how the hell did i get some long convoluted <laughs> Red mother earth poetry vibe is my quarterly poetry open mic and feature it happens on the first saturdays of february may august and november Okay. Uh, and it happens at a place called red emma's bookstore coffee house uh a very special place uh, uh, in my life. It is uh, 
a worker-owned collective where everybody on the team is either an owner or in position to become an owner. Uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, it started in 04. I was living in Ohio at the time, but uh, I I became a customer from about a year after they opened. And any time I was back home from Ohio or Connecticut, I would be there. And when I moved back to Maryland in, in 2012, they couldn't get me out the store anyway. So now I actually am on staff. I'm part of the team as a bookseller there. Uh, we are a radical independent bookstore. We are a basically a vegan restaurant. We have a few dairy options on some things, but for the most part, it's an all plant-based restaurant. But it's an event space. Uh, uh, it is. It comes out of anarchist roots. Uh, we are unapologetically from the radical left. Uh, it has helped my interaction with the the project over the years. Has helped shape a lot of my social political identity in terms of of moving toward what I what I would. Uh, uh, identifies the radical left. Uh, I disaffiliated from the Democrats a few election cycles ago because while there are those individuals that I I really like, um, that I support, the DNC as a whole, the party as a whole is far too status quo maintaining and far too disappointing. Uh, and so I had to move left of Democrat. Uh, and some of that thought certainly has been influenced by kind of the, the rad left social anarcho social influence and thought um, that I've encountered uh, at Red Emma's over the years. Uh, it's named after Emma Goldman, the anarchist leader oh, around the turn of the century. So that ought to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Yep. Uh, yeah, and so that's a, that's a venue that I host there. Uh, our theme is Peace, Justice, Poetry. Uh, it's, always a, it's always a dynamic evening in terms of the open mic. Everybody from people who are first time on the mic shaking, they've never done this before, to national slam champions and everybody in between. Always a five-star feature. Uh, and then I show up at various other venues, you know, uh, in the uh, DMV region. Uh, uh, love the feature, you know, if any of your listeners want to um, connect with me, uh, I know they'll have uh, my info on, on, on the website. I do have a small chapbook of poetry. It's eight justice poems, justice related poems. It's called Somewhere Through the Haze. Uh, and they can get it uh, at redemmas.org. Go to the books tab, or you can get it also on lulu.com. I, I think I'm not totally positive. I think that might work for our international listeners. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping that that is the case. And I'm not saying that incorrectly, but Certainly uh, within the U.S., uh, you can get it uh, either at redemmas.org or at lulu.com. And, um, yeah, you know, just, uh, uh, I mean, so much to talk about. We we need about eight hours uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. to, un to unpack some of these things. And, yeah. Um, well, I would love to talk to you again. This is all, you've definitely said a lot and got me thinking about other shows and things we've, Want to keep talking more about? Absolutely. That would be great. I would love to. Uh, Thank love you to any time. so much. Uh, yeah. Appreciative for what you and, and the Leftscape team is doing. Keep pushing it out there on, on the rad left. We need it. Absolutely. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Robin. Take care. Hello, this is Robin Renee. You can find me online at robinrenee.com 
And my music is on iTunes, CD Baby, Pandora, Spotify, and elsewhere around the web. So check it out. And you can like me at facebook.com slash Robin Renee Fan. Tweet at me at Spirit Rock Sexy and follow me on Instagram at Robin Renee Music. I would love to hear from you. Well, it is self-promotion month and I'm going to be promoting myself because we need to eat here. I will be at the Rahway Artist Flea Market on November 2nd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's at the Rahway Rec Center. Uh, if you're a local, you'll know where that is. <laughs> and I will also be tabling with my friend D at PhilCon, which is the Philadelphia Area Science Fiction Convention, on November 8th through 10th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. If you guys are there, please stop by and say hi. I would love to talk to you. Are you out of your fucking mind? Fascinating. I know that. Oh, I can't battle. Fascinating. Okay. No computer. Stand by to receive our transmission. So welcome to the Geekscape, which is a new segment we uh well, I say we, I, I that I lobbied for, for the podcast. <laughs> Our resident uh, geek, like we're not all geeks. <laughs> we are all geeks, but I'm, I'm more traditionally geeky, I guess, um, because <laughs> I'm into like the science fiction stuff. Um, and, and this segment, the Geekscape is where we talk about particular subjects that we're nerdy, geeky about, so... Uh, for me, and I figured um, Star Trek is a good place to start because many people are fans of the show or of one of the various shows. It's God, it's been on for more than fifty years, yep. and um, it is an entry point for a lot of people. I think, yeah, mm -hmm. it is. It is. That's true. Um, and uh, the one thing that I enjoy very much now as a as a older person um about star trek is is its uh base premise of infinite diversity and infinite combinations that was the theme that allowed them to pursue a lot of the the social justice kind of episodes in the original series you know they had the first interracial kiss on television and i th and i don't think they had the first same sex kiss on television but they were pretty close to it in in deep space 9 i don't know you know they they talked about you know race issues in the original series they talked about ecolot ecological issues and political issues and amongst the humans they were they were definitely trying to present a world where where um the economic in inequality is gone and the racial inequality is gone and i think though that those kind of inequalities kind of got pushed onto the alien species that that the humans interact with mm. I was going to say that. I think my question was going to be, did they, 
where did they succeed and where where did they not fully see things at that point? Yeah, you know, okay. Depending um, on the different eras you're talking about. And yeah, I'm it depends. familiar with yeah. the original series, so, you know. You're the most familiar with the original? Yeah, series? there's okay. like a lot that came after that I'm not, I don't know all of the episodes of everything, you know, so <laughs> I don't know where that's grown or how that's changed. Yeah, you know, some of the, the original series stuff was, you know, hitting you over the head with the point, a lot of it. It, it wasn't exactly what I would call subtle. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was the 60s and, and, I, and I was 11. And Vietnam 12, War nine, was going somewhere. on. So war was a big thing. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, they had, and the Cold War was going on. So, and I think that the Klingons were kind of supposed to be Russian in some vague way. At least that's that's the sense I always got from it, because um, there was like the, a cold war going on between the humans and the and the Klingons in the original series. My memory of all of the specific episodes isn't as strong as the later series. I is. always I always remember <laughs> that one with Frank Gorshin. Yeah, where, that's the where that they was, were half white and half black. Right, and it was like. If you were white on the left side, well, you, got, you that's were one not thing, and you were black on the left side, you were something else. Yeah, it had to do well, with which side of the body. Yeah, well, that was, was what, what was revealed at the end. You know that that was the surprise that was revealed at the end. No, I thought the surprise that was revealed at the end was that the planet was completely devoid of life. That they, they had killed each other. Oh, they had see, wiped you each have other a good out. memory. And uh, no, I mean it was. Yeah, it was. It was, I mean, the, the, the side of the body of which, yeah, but which I, color was, was revealed earlier in the show because I think they had one of the, Frank Gorshin was one of the guys and then the other guy comes in and he was the opposite. And, yeah, and, but the, the thing is that, that uh, uh, Kirk says, but, but you're both the same. Look, you're both the same. And he says, no, we're not the same. Look, he's the black on the left. And then... <laughs> Oh, okay. There was a big oh, oh, okay. That's what there was a big about. oh. You're ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like the folly of racism, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Up until the new series and Discovery is on, like the CBS All Access, which is I think they they put it behind their paywall because they knew that nobody would pay for their stuff without that. Um, and it took me till season two was. I think almost over before I decided to subscribe uh, of, of uh, the new series um, discovery. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'll talk about that in two seconds, but I wanted to talk about deep space nine mm -hmm. um, because I think that series, you know, that's the series where we had Benjamin Cisco played by Avery Brooks. Thank you. <laughs> I went to school with him. That's right. I forget. You know all of the people. You know everybody. <laughs> but um, you know, so he was he was like the first black captain to get a, or he's definitely the first black lead to get a role on a Star Trek franchise. Mm -hmm. And there's one particular episode that really is it's my favorite one out of that whole series. I mean, that series is was my favorite up until Discovery. Out of all of them, but Deep Space Nine had this one episode. Oh, I think, I think it was to travel beyond the stars. Possibly is the name of it. It was the one where Cisco is like in some kind of coma, and he's 
it, you it, the whole show was basically set in the 1950s. And, oh, I think and I he's a science that. fiction writer writing the story about Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah, I remember and, that. I like you know, layers of reality. And well, I like that episode for a lot of reasons. It was also, you know, you got to see all the actors outside of their alien makeup. And and they said it in the 50s. So people, you know, so I guess white people could be comfortable thinking, oh, well, we've gone beyond race relations because there's a, you know, the cops are beating people up and putting them in the hospital. And, and, and I think they kill a young man at one point. And um, the last time I watched it uh, was maybe within the last two years. And it says so much about what's happening now. Cause I think it was, uh, I saw it after all of the, um, all of the stuff with all of the, the young men getting killed over the, few years like Ferguson and all that other stuff and, and Florida. And with that in the back of my mind and watching this, you know, I, I'm sitting here saying, you know, to myself, like, holy shit, Pete, you know, the, the black people have been, have been trying to tell us for 50 years, 60 years that this is still going on and we've been like ignoring it. Mm. What was you the know, name of been, that episode again? I, I don't remember specifically, yeah. but I think it's like you know something beyond the stars. Something beyond the stars. Okay. I, I, I want to dig that out and see, see it again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think those are on I, Netflix. I, Netflix, maybe, unless CBS grabbed everything again. I don't know. See, that's um, a good kind of, that's a good point about how cultural, cultural things you know, film or TV can actually help to dislodge some of that inability to see what's happening, you know? Yeah. And it, because and I, and I also like that yeah. I don't have to ask any of my friends of color to guide me through this realization, you know, I mean, it's like, I can, I can watch this and come to the conclusion myself without having any, anybody having to do any emotional labor for me. So there's Star Trek, and there's the new episode uh, section. Um, you're geeking out. What do we call this section? <laughs> the Geekscape. The Geekscape. <laughs> the Geekscape. <laughs> um, and the theme, our little bumper music, is uh, from a composition I did many, many, many years ago. Um, I built the rhythm track out of the communicator sound and the red alert sound and the door sound mm. from the original series and with lots of other sound clips from that sampling yeah nice. well i do that too yeah you're so fancy 